recently we were staying up in the mountains as a family, and I took my six-year-old outside after dark to do a little stargazing. And it was a clear night, no moon. We were far away from the city light pollution, and so we had a spectacular time just looking up into the night sky. And Russell saw his first shooting star. So that was very special. And uh, we were laying there. We had um, we put together like a bunch of blankets and pillows. So we were laying on all the blankets and the pillows to do some stargazing. And after about 30 minutes of laying there, looking into the night sky together, Russell said, Mommy, I wish I could just take all those stars into my tummy because then I could be a glow stick. <laughs> So being a pastor, I was like, oh, I wonder if this is like the six-year-old's version of what, you know, Christian mystics talk about as spiritual union. <laughs> or maybe he just wants to be a glow stick. I don't know. But it was a special time looking at the stars. And some people worship creation itself. Others are drawn to the maker of those shooting stars. God's creation, and here in Colorado, we have amazing opportunity to soak it in. God's creation is capable of pointing us to God. When you just stand before a mountain, when you look out over the aspens turning yellow, when you lay under the night sky and you just say, wow, there's no other word for it. It's hard not to be in awe when you look up at the night sky. Isaiah 40, 26 speaks to this wonder. Lift up your eyes. Look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. You know, when I'm gazing at the stars like that, I kind of want to soak it in my tummy, too. I just want to, like, bring it all in, all the way down to my toes. And even more, I want to be one with the maker of those stars. Have you had this experience? There is rational thinking. Of course, there's irrational. And then there's transrational, those experiences in life that go beyond words, they surpass our ability to explain them. When you hold a newborn baby, when you look into the night sky, when you stand at the edge of an ocean at sunset, when you become lost and deep intimate, abiding prayer, there's no other word. Wow. It goes beyond explanation. Today, we are continuing our series, Five Words to Change Your Life, and today we're looking at the word wow. How can the word wow change our lives? It's interesting because so much of our thinking is shaped by rational thought. We are trained in our culture, in our world today, we are trained to trust what is visible. 
what is physical, what is material, what is rational. Most of modern Christian experience is rooted in the rational. So G.K. Chesterton one time said this. He said, there are two kinds of people. One, when they see a tree swaying in the wind, will say the wind is moving the tree. The other group of people will say it is the tree that's moving that is creating the wind. Do you see the difference? The wind that I cannot see is moving this tree that I can see versus, oh, no, 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 no. Only the thing I see, the physical world, the material world, the rationale, is what I trust. The tree moving created that wind that's blowing. Just a moment ago, we were singing together, far be it from me to not believe even when my eyes can't see. This mountain in front of me is thrown into the depths of the sea. We think often that the opposite of faith is doubt. But as Richard Rohr has said, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. There is an element of mystery. And when you are caught up in that mystery of the maker of those shooting stars, there's no other word. Wow. What else do you say but to say wow when you stand in worship of a God you cannot fully understand? Now, here's the problem with our rational approach to faith. Only, uh, not the only problem, but here's one problem. Here's one practical way it works itself out. When someone in our community um, has a health scare, and they send in the prayer request, and they say, you know, that health scare has resolved itself. I went to the doctor, and I got a good, healthy report. Sometimes what people will just, just naturally say, they'll say, oh, God is so good. But when cancer strikes, we don't know what to say. Is God still good? Because when I trust in what is material, physical, rational, when I do not see, when I do not acknowledge or recognize that God's ways are higher than my ways, God's thoughts are higher than my thoughts, and perhaps there is some work being done here that I don't understand. Like, even when my eyes can't see, God may still be at work in my life and in the world. You know, I've been reading this book. It's kind of an obscure book, but it's called A Traveler Toward the Dawn. It's the spiritual journal of a guy named John Egan. And um, this week I was struck, preparing this message, reading this book, um, by some, a story he tells. He, um, there's a woman named Nancy in his life during his time of ministry. 
and this woman was struck with a terminal illness. And John Egan had spent some time in Guatemala, so he went to visit Nancy, this woman, on her deathbed. She's in her 40s, had little young kids, and um, this is what he says about this time with Nancy. Nancy wanted to talk about dying. No nonsense or wasted words. She spoke of her feelings of uselessness. She, who had done so much for family and friends, what was she anymore to husband or kids or friends? He says, I listened and then spoke simply of the Guatemalan Indians and what they had taught me about death. Their realism was essentially this. Grandpa's job in life was to grow corn. For the Mayan, this is truly a religious rite. Grandpa did the job God gave him, and he did it well. And now, lying on a mat in his casa, sick unto death, Grandpa's doing the last job God gives him, the job of suffering and dying, and he is doing it well. And so this family, they went about life in the casa, cooking tortillas and chatting and eating and living as grandpa lay dying. So matter of fact, so real in their attitude. He goes on to say, so I told Nancy, Nancy, the one chore all of us have is to do what God gives us to do. For years, you've done the job he gave you to be wife to Paul and a mother to these kids, and you've done it well. And now, God is giving you one last job, one final chore, to suffer and die and do it well, to say yes to life and to the Lord of life, to say yes to your progressive diminishment and to find God in it. Some of these lessons maybe we can only learn from our brothers and sisters overseas because our rational way of thinking so informs our faith. Sometimes it's hard for us to sing and really mean the lyric of that song, far be it from me not to believe even when my eyes can't see. You know, it's interesting. So neurobiology um, and contemplative practices of spirituality, there's an interesting intersection happening in the world right now of neurobiology and just what we've known about contemplative spiritual practices. And neurobiology experts say that you and I have 50 to 60,000 thoughts per day. But 90 to 94... 90 to 95% of that, those thoughts that you have are repetitive. It's like our brains are stuck in a rut. And they also say that most of those thoughts were formed by the age 7 and memorized by 35. Our brains are stuck in a rut. There's a phrase in neurobiology, it says... Neurons that fire together wire together. So this is why we find ourselves saying the same things to ourselves over and over, like, oh, I'm just a lazy person. I don't have a lot of energy. I'm just prone to, you know, melancholy. We, we say these things to ourselves 
over and over and over and over, 50 to 60,000 thoughts in a day, and 90 to 95% of them are repetitive. Here's the good news, though. The good news is that you and I can wake up. The good news is we can embrace intentional practices of disruption that can change our lives. So really, that is what this series is all about. Last week, we looked at the word no and yes, and we talked about what does it look like to embrace yes. Today, we're looking at the word wow. How can wow change our lives? And what this really is about, this series is really about, it's disrupting our patterns. And so maybe you're a person who never asks for help because you are so self-sufficient, that would look like weakness every time. But the good news is you actually can Every time, you know, I'm not going to ask for help. I mean, I would never, I would look weak. I would look stupid. I don't need help. I'm good on my own. I'm self-sufficient. You can stop yourself and you can say, no, 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 no. My brain is stuck in a rut. And never asking for help has only led me to isolation and loneliness and anxiety. And I choose to retrain my brain with God's help. So that's really what this series is all about. It's interesting as we look today at the word wow, the beloved author Clive Staples Lewis, we call him C.S. Lewis, he had a term, he had an idea that he used really as a guiding principle of his life. And that word was joy. Even during the years that he considered himself an atheist, C.S. Lewis sought to experience joy a transcendent experience of goodness that surpassed just happiness or pleasure. And the word for this week is wow. It's a word that we make almost involuntarily when we experience something wonderful, something awesome. Wow is the word that accompanies what C.S. Lewis meant when he talked about joy. There's a depth to it. It's like a gut-level reaction. It isn't logical. It isn't fully explainable, even to ourselves. But when we experience deep joy, when you encounter something so good, it hurts. You can't help but go, wow. It's just involuntary. I mean, wow. In the final chapter of Luke's gospel, we read, this is the final chapter where he's been chronicling the resurrection of Jesus and his appearing to the women at the tomb and then to two people on the road to Emmaus. We see a wow moment unfold. Looking in particular at the road to Emmaus story that Susan just read, um, N.T. Wright, scholar, New Testament scholar, talks about how we can see it's like a brilliant retelling. This passage in Luke is a brilliant retelling of the Adam and Eve story in Genesis, only it is in reverse. Okay, so track with me on this for just a minute. The way that Luke tells this story is really inviting us to compare and contrast what he is saying in the Gospel of Luke with Genesis chapter 3. 
Because Genesis chapter 3 begins with the man and the woman in the garden. And they have this task before them. And their task is to bring God's love to bear, God's wise ordering to bear on the whole of creation. The woman takes the forbidden fruit and she gives some to the man and they both eat it. And the Bible says this, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. What happens next? Thorns, thistles, sorrow, shame, despair. Fast forward to our passage in Luke 24 today, and Luke wants to tell us that this story from Genesis 3 has now been reversed. Here we are, two people walking on the road. Where are they living? They are living in a world. Jesus, who they hoped was the Messiah, is now dead. They are living in thorns and thistles and sorrow and shame. They are living in despair. Their hopes are shattered. And then Jesus meets them on the road in the middle of their loss. He explains the scriptures to him, to them, and then they come into the house together. And they sit down and he takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it. And the Bible says... And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, the Greek here is very close to the Septuagint of Genesis 3. It is inviting us to see that here in Luke, as was in the very beginning of time, God's image bearers, his people who he created, who were born in love, in his image, are being invited to take his forgiving love, his wise ordering to the whole of creation. It is a reversal of the fall. Another commentator, commentator, um, Earl Ellis, points out that Luke, here in Luke, this meal, is this interesting to you? It's interesting to me. This meal, this Emmaus meal, is the eighth, number eight, meal in the gospel. So the Last Supper was the seventh meal. And he says, why does that matter? Because seven days of creation, and here we are, this eighth meal at Emmaus, is the inauguration of the new kingdom, of the new creation of the new world order, the reversal of the fall, that we are no longer in exile, shut out of the garden, but now in God through Christ, because of what Christ has done, we are invited to, as his image bearers, not just be beneficiaries of this new kingdom, of to be transformed ourselves, but to also go be witnesses to this new creation, this new kingdom that he is building. The resurrection of Jesus, it's like the ultimate wow. It's an awesome reversal of sin and death and isolation and exile. And this, these two people on the road to Emmaus, 
They see in the breaking of the bread, they recognize the risen Christ in their midst. All they can say is, wow, I mean, they're legit. In fact, listen to their words, their sentiment. This is what they say. Were not our hearts on fire while he talked with us on the road and when he explained the scriptures to us? We don't even have words. Awe-inspiring. To live the word wow is to live with our hearts and our eyes open to experiencing this joy all around us. There are moments all around us, all the time, that can, perhaps should, inspire us to say, wow. Moments that cause us to experience joy, a deep longing to linger and to embrace the terrible, beautiful beauty of the moment. And all of these moments point us to God, who is the source of all good. So what are these moments? Well, we've mentioned some of them, looking at the stars, standing at the edge of an ocean watching a sunset, holding a newborn baby, when a person first comes to faith in Christ or celebrates one year of sobriety, or when you read a novel, deeply moves you, or you experience music from a favorite artist, or you gather around with people you love at a table and the smells and the sounds and the laughter is so rich. These are moments of wow. It is the joy of these wow moments that point us to God, who is the source of all that is good. Now, here's the main problem. Yes, moments of wow surround us, but there seem to be two main obstacles to our noticing. Two main things that block our ability to see. It's almost like there's two big rocks in the river blocking the flow. And those two things are this, busyness and control. When I talk to people and listen to people's lives, when I think about my own experience, many of us are so busy, we miss wow because we're worshiping at this altar of productivity. We think, if I don't get it all done, I'm going to let some people down. I'm going to miss out on an opportunity. I'm going to fail. I'm not going to come through for the people I love, so we stay busy, busy, busy with productivity. And the second block to our seeing wow moments all around us is control. It's almost like our heads are like the air traffic control tower at the airport. And here's the thing about the air traffic controller. They exist to be in control. And part of the journey of living a life of worship, a life of wow, living more and more moments in God's presence, part of that journey is descending the six inches from my head 
that always wants to be in control to my heart. And it's not to throw my head under the bus. I still need her. She's going to help me do meal planning for the week. She's going to help me coordinate who's picking the kids up when and where are they going next. She's going to help me get that meeting together and lead that team. And and your mind and your brain is going to help you too. But there is a relinquishment. There is a letting go when we surrender to worship, to wow. There is a letting go that happens, that we are not just on the hamster wheel of productivity constantly. And it's interesting how God invites us to live more and more moments in his presence. Have you ever thought about how most trauma in our lives exists in the past or in the future? And the most healing moment is the present. And God's presence is always in the present. So there is a walking in the presence of God invitation. In the present is often where we experience that awe, wonder, wow. Do you remember that movie, The Matrix? See, in, back in the 90s, pastors could mention this movie and everybody knew what they were talking about. But now it's quite dated. But if you remember the movie, there's a guy named Neo. And in the beginning of the movie, there are all these bullets flying at Neo. And it's creating a lot of anxiety in his life because all these bullets are flying at him. But he goes on a journey throughout the movie. And he comes to realize in that journey that he's a part of a larger story. He is a part of a grand narrative. And at the end of the movie, the bullets are flying at him again. But you know what happened? They're now, everything has slowed down. So he actually can take one of those bullets and he can just kind of turn it in his hand. He can just take it from the air and look at it. And in a very real sense, that is what happens when we live more and more moments of our lives in worship, in wow, in God's presence. The bullets are still coming at you. Oh, here comes that annoying person again. Here comes that demanding child. Here comes that stressful situation. But I've rewired on the inside. It's coming at you differently. You have the internal resources to respond differently than you used to. The presence of God has actually changed your life. So what used to be a very anxious response, I was actually, that inner sanctuary that has been de- God has been developing in me, it's given me the ability to be calm when I used to be anxious given me the ability to forgive when I used to hold a grudge. It's given me the ability to respond with patience when I used to get angry very quickly. Things slow down, coming at you differently. The presence of God has changed you. 
And I think for most of us, in the early stages of following Christ, and also every single time we try to go deeper in our faith, when we have a desire to go deeper in our faith, at the beginning, and anytime you want to go deeper, we need tools, like practical tools. We need an acronym for prayer. We need a how-to study the Bible. We need a structured format. We need to be at church every single Sunday to be filled up. We need to download those sermons. We need these tools, both in the beginning and every time we attempt to go deeper. But it's interesting how the tools change over time in our lives. Teresa of Avila, Christian mystic, talks about how in the beginning of contemplative practices, it's like you have two big empty buckets, and you are taking those buckets down to the river, and you're filling them up with water, and they are full to overflowing. And then they get depleted, and then you take them back down to the river, and you fill them up. But she says, over time what happens is you come to realize that the fountain is within. Meaning that what the father said to the oldest son in the story of the prodigal son is true for you. What the father said to the eldest son is, everything I have, it's already yours. So you no longer need the tools in the same way because you realize that flow, that river, that stream that you've been going back for more, it's actually within. It is not you, but it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Which means you can be anywhere. You can be sitting quietly before a mountain. You can have bullets, you know, metaphorically flying at you. You can be anywhere because you have learned that the inner sanctuary of your soul can be standing in wow, can be standing in worship anywhere, anytime, all the time. So you no longer need those tools in the same way. And you return to them as you desire to go deeper. You return to different ones as you desire to go deeper. But this week, as I um, was preparing this message, I heard a song, first time I heard it, you may have heard it before, but heard a song, it really spoke to me in preparing this message. It's so much so that, I kid you not, I have listened to the song well over a dozen times this week. And so on Tuesday, I emailed Charlie and Mike, and I was like, hey, you guys, do you think we could do this song um, on Sunday? And so you guys, Charlie had an especially full week, and um, he really should have said no to preparing the song. He had never heard before either, um, but the thing is, is last Sunday he heard Tim do a sermon on the word yes, so <laughs> he said yes, so we are going to hear this song now, and um, my hope and my prayer as we come to the table is that we might embrace wow, that we might live more and more of our moments in the awe and the wonder of the God who has loved you, gave himself for you, whose hand you can hold walking through every moment of every day. My hope and prayer is that um, this song might lead us more into that posture of wow this, 
this week. So let's take a listen. God of creation, there at the start, before the beginning of time. With no point of reference, you spoke to the dark and fleshed out the wonder of speak a hundred billion galaxies are born in the vapor of your breath the planets form if the stars were made to worship so will I I can see your heart in everything Every burning star, a signal fire of grace. Your creation sings your praises so
hill you created, the light of the world abandoned in darkness to die. the one who never leaves the one behind 